0: You have been so gracious, so responsive, and I must tell you, I have enjoyed every minute of this week with the Staley lectureship here at the Masters College. I particularly enjoyed my time with many of you on a personal basis, enjoyed meeting with the baseball team, with several of the classes, with many of you who have sat down to lunch with me over in the dining hall. It's been an enriching week. I am very impressed with graciousness these days. I recently completed an autobi- a biography of one of my heroes, Sir Winston Churchill. Incredibly gifted human being, gracious he was not. Particularly with Lady Astor, first woman elected to Parliament, they were constantly at each other's throats. On one occasion she said to him with disgust, Sir Winston, if I were your wife, I would put arsenic in your tea. To which he responded, Lady Astor, if you were my wife, I would drink it. (laughs) On another occasion they met on an elevator, he was slightly to the wind, she said, Sir Winston, you are drunk. He was equal to the occasion because he responded by saying, Lady Esther, you are ugly. <laughs> but tomorrow I will be sober. Chad Walsh said it. Millions of Christians live in a sentimental haze of vague piety, with soft organ music trembling in the lovely light from stained glass windows. Their religion is a pleasant thing of emotional quiver, divorced from the intellect, divorced from the will, and demanding little except lip service to a few harmless platitudes. I suspect he said that Satan has called off his attempt to convert people to agnosticism. After all, if a person travels far enough away from Christianity, he's always in danger of seeing it in perspective and deciding that it is true. It is much safer from Satan's point of view to vaccinate a person with a mild case of Christianity so as to protect him from the real disease. Christian leaders are not infected with a mild case of Christianity. They have the real disease. In our series this week, entitled Leadership for the Year 2000, we have sought to ask and answer three basic questions. Number one, what is the need for leadership? We discovered it's screaming. We need leaders in our society. We need leaders in our families. And we need leaders in our homes. On Wednesday, we sought to ask and answer the question, what kind of a man, what kind of a woman does it take to make an impact on our kind of society? And we surfaced for you ten characteristics of transformative leaders, characteristics that the Spirit of God wants to weave into the fabric of our character. Now today, I want to ask and answer the question, how do you motivate as a leader? You see, the number one problem in leadership today is motivation. It's overcoming initial inertia, getting people off of the dime and into action. It's always easier to direct a moving object. But resurrection is difficult at any level. I am convinced it is much more important to determine a person's MQ than their IQ. Their motivation quotient rather than their intellectual quotient. You see, the people who are failing in every area of life are failing primarily not for lack of ability, but for lack of application. It was Charles Kettering, who said, a problem well defined is a problem half solved. We're going to talk about motivation. We need to ask, what is a motive? Let me define it for you simply. A motive is primarily that within an individual, not without, which incites him or her to action. It's that primarily within the individual, not without, which incites them to action. It may be an idea, it may be an emotion, it may be a need, it may be an organic state, but it always emanates from within. See, we have to distinguish between two primary forms of motivation. There is extrinsic motivation, that is, any form of motivation external to the individual. But the primary means of motivation is intrinsic motivation, in which I do what I do, not because I have to, not because somebody has a 45 in my head, Not because somebody promises me a lollipop or an ice cream cone if I do it, but I do what I do because basically I choose to do it. In other words, you become a self-starter. Now for a few moments this morning, I would like to explore with you your working capital as a motivator. I have a basic conviction. My conviction is this, everyone, no exception, everyone can become a motivator if you know how and are willing to pay the price. And I'd like to share with you five or six ways options open to every man, every woman in this auditorium. To become a motivator as a leader. Number one, you motivate when you intensify interpersonal relationships. John chapter 1 and verse 14, John says, The Word became flesh, and pitched his tent among us, and we beheld his glory, the glory of the Father full of grace and truth. Men and women, God's method is always incarnational. He loves to take truth and wrap it in human personality. Therefore, the closer the relationship, the greater the potential for motivation. And that's our problem. Most of us are too far removed from the people we are trying to motivate. And you will discover you motivate people in direct proportion to your personal involvement with them. You see, you can impress people at a distance, but you can only impact them up close. My students ask profound questions. They ask questions like, uh, Prof, uh, what time is this period over? And that's a Lulu. Or, Dr. Hendricks, are you going to ask this question on the examination? Which being interpreted means, if you are not, I shall now proceed to forget it. And while they're filing out the door, I'll say, hey, how about coming out to my house tonight? Sure, prop, what are you going to do? I don't know. Come on out, we'll find out. 30 or 40 of them show up at the house at night. We're wall-to-wall on the carpet. We've got a Coke in our hands. Pretty soon we're embroiled in the discussion. And before long, it's 1 o'clock in the morning. And nobody's asking, uh, when is this period over? You going to ask this on the exam? Men and women, I don't understand all I know. I just know that four walls condition people to learning. And they show up in your Sunday school class and they show up in your church and publish it not in Gath nor spread it abroad in Zion, but they show up at the Master's College in a class and say, I shall now proceed to be learned. Learn me, I dare you. People in my church are very gracious people. Their motto is, go ye into all the world and take pictures. (laughs) So some time ago, I was going to the Orient. They said, Hendricks, you are going to the Orient. Please take us some pictures. So I went to the Orient. I took them some pictures. I came back. They said, you have been to the Orient. Please show us your pictures. I showed them my pictures. They said, they are very lovely pictures. And on the way home, I said to my wife, what a waste of time. We now move into Plan B. At the time, I think we had four or five medical doctors fellowshipping with us at our church. So I invited these guys to come to my home one night. I said, man, I got something to show you that'll blow your mind. Oh, great, Henry. What, what have you got? Well, I said, I got some shots of a medical clinic out in the Philippines among They the head hunting group. Oh, that, that's very interesting. How did that get started? Well, it got started by a professor of surgery at Harvard Medical School. Walked out the front door one day, told them to hang it on their beak. He was going where the action was. Carved that thing out. Oh, that's, that's impressive. Then I get a terrific shot of the pharmacy with the empty shelves. They said, what's that, Hallie? He said, that's the pharmacy. The pharmacy. There are no pharmaceuticals there. Yeah, I know. Wait a minute. How in the world can you have a pharmacy without pharmaceuticals? I don't know. They got one over there. (laughs) We get all the way to the end of the picture. Guess what the first question is? Hey, how can you have a pharmacy without pharmaceuticals? Would you believe those doctors, plus the larger core they formed, have now given over four, between four and five million dollars worth of pharmaceuticals to missionary clinics around the world? You see, I happen to believe there isn't a man or a woman sitting in this auditorium that cannot be motivated. And if you had time to sit down next to you to find out what is it that pumps your gas? What is it that moves your adrenaline? We could make a drastic difference in your life. The student at Wheaton College, I had the most brilliant professor I have ever had in my life. There is not a major university in America that has not sought his services. My most vivid memory of this professor is working in a boxcar in the city of Chicago, tossing boxes during the Christmas vacation. He being compelled to work in that boxcar to afford the luxury of teaching in a Christian institution. He said nothing to me about it. I will never be the same. You see, it's one thing to run off at the mouth about commitment. It's another thing to be a PhD that every Ivy League school has sought since he started teaching. And he refuses to go and continues to teach in a Christian school because of commitment. And I'll never recover from that exposure. Not because he sat down one day and said, Hendricks, I want to give you a sermon on commitment. But because he communicated it in the interpersonal relationship. May I say to you, and particularly many of you who have shared some of the most significant ministries God has given you, never go anywhere alone. You go into a ball game, you take somebody along that you want to motivate. You're working with a group of high school kids and you got to go across town, pick up some high school kids, take them with you. My wife and I happen to be symphony fans. Every year we buy four season tickets. We buy them deliberately so that every time we go to the symphony... We will take two lost people with us, because we have discovered over the years that Gene and I have seen a steady stream of men and women come to Christ by personal exposure, taken into the symphony, taking them to a ball game, inviting them over to our home for a steak fry. Personal involvement. There's a second way that you can motivate, and that is by creating a need through exposure to reality. You create a need by exposure to reality. You see, you need to distinguish between two kinds of needs. There are, first of all, what we call real needs. Most of them are subsurface. They are at an unconscious level. They are real needs, but you are not aware of them. There are also self-needs. These are needs that usually are surface. You had an examination today. That's a real need. You're going on a spring break, and some of you are going home to parents who don't know the Savior and who really take a very dim view, not only of your coming to the master's college, but the fact that you wrote them in a letter, you're even considering investing your life in Christian service. And you're going home. That's a real need, because you're going to meet them tonight. They're going to ask you some penetrating questions. See, Jesus Christ never used the storage tank approach to education. He never said, look, man, I'm only going to be with you for a little over three years, so take this stuff down, you'll need it someday. He said on one occasion, I've got many things to share with you, but you're not able to bear them now. But that's no problem to me, because when he, the Spirit of truth, has come, he'll guide you into all truth. Mark chapter 4, Jesus gave some of the most significant addresses and lessons to his disciples. The theme of which is, he that hath ears to hear, let him hear. They were centered on faith. But like the good teacher that he was, he knew that you don't learn about faith in a classroom. You learn it in the laboratory of life. So he gives them a hearing test. He said, let's go to the other side. So they take off. They get into the middle of the lake, and they discover not only is the boat in the water where it belongs, but the water is in the boat. And a group of professional fishermen come to the conclusion, this thing is going down. This is it. So they come and wake him up and say, don't you even care? We're in a process of perishing. The implication is, at least you could help the out. And the Lord gets up and rebukes the wind, the wave, no problems there. And then he turns to the disciples and says to them, how is it that you, that's emphatic, you of all people have no faith? Who? The guys that just heard the lectures on faith. See, Jesus said, let's go to the other side, not let's go to the middle of the lake and drown. They wrote a blue book, and it came back with a great big F on it, and that was not for faith. They flunked. I used to teach counseling a number of years ago, and a student came up after one class and he said, "Prof, you got something a little more stimulating, challenging? I said, yeah, I think so. So I call up my friend out on Harry Hines Boulevard in Dallas at the juvenile home. I said, hey, man, I got a student that needs an education. He said, I got the picture. Send him out. So I sent the student out. They take this kid and they drop him. In the cell of a kid, 14 years of age, billed on 26 major counts of juvenile delinquency. State was simply waiting to put him away permanently, which, by the way, is where he is and will probably be there the rest of his life. Student was dropped into the cell, and the clank of that door behind him scared him spitless. The little kid was sitting with his feet propped up on the windowsill, and he turned around and said, Hey, What's your line? Every day they send somebody in here with a different line. What's yours? You should hear the student tell us. He said, boy, Prof, I lost it all right on the floor in front of me. (laughs) But did he ever come back wondering if I knew anything about how to handle this kind of a situation? A student meet me on the campus one day, and he said to me, professor I'm going out to the university. Oh, I said, wonderful. What are you going to do out there? He said, I'm going to... I'm going to teach one of those Bible classes in a fraternity. Oh, I said, fantastic. Yeah, I said, pray for me. Oh, I said, I'd be delighted to pray for you. What do you want me to pray for? Well, you know, pray that they won't go from my jugular, as you say. I said, you don't think I'm going to pray that, do you? Well, what are you going to pray? I said, I'm going to pray that that's exactly where they go. You're kidding. I said, I couldn't be more truthful. He went out to the university, and I met him on the campus the next day. I said, how'd you make out, man? He said, the Lord answered your prayer. <laughs> My friend, they crucified the kid. They papered the walls with him. But for your information, I do not know of an individual in the United States of America more effective working with college students than this young man. And if he were here, he would tell you, he learned us. In a fraternity one night, when they papered the wall with him, and when he finally came to understand, he really didn't know. You see, men and women, the reason people feel confident is that they've never been sufficiently confused. And one of the things that you need to do is to expose them to reality, and they'll get a liberal arts education. That's what the Savior did. You ever read that verse in Luke chapter 11 and verse 1? Disciples said, Lord, teach us to pray. By the way, that's the only thing the disciples ever asked Jesus to teach them. Did you ever ask? Why did they ask that? I'll tell you. Because every time they found him, they found him on his knees. And I think it must have been Philip who said to Andrew one day, Hey, Andy, why didn't you ask Jesus about that? I I think it's a biggie. Major point. Would anybody ever ask you to teach them to pray because they found you so often on your knees and came to the conclusion that the reason for her effectiveness. That's why she's such a breed apart. Here's the third way, and that is you motivate people by feeding and developing responsibility. People thrive on this. Build on the principle, the greater the investment, the greater the interest. The first piece of woodworking I ever did in my life was to make a stool. I've nicknamed this stool the abomination of desolation. (laughs) You gotta see it to appreciate no two pieces of wood are going in precisely the proper direction. The paint job is atrocious. Every time I go home to Philadelphia, I have to nail the sad thing back together again. But you women know that every living room is supposed to have a center of interest. Well, friends, smack dab in the middle of the center of interest in my grandmother's home is this school. And, you know, the conversation languishes and finally somebody will say, <laughs> that's interesting. <laughs> and I can still see my grandmother swell with pride as she says, <laughs> and Howard made that. And I want to crawl underneath the rug. And I take that thing down in the basement and I hide it. And I come back six months later and there it is, right in the center of the living room. See, my friend, it may be a beat up stool to you, but it happens to be a slice of the life in which she invested hers. And when my parents put me out, my grandmother took me in. She made the investment of a life in this little kid and that's why she's so interested in the stool we have a professor we had one he went to his reward out at Southern Methodist University School of Law his name was Charmitz he teaches trial, taught trial law has developed more winners in the state of Texas than any five professors together. So a trial law, he would set up the prosecution, the defense, put the rest of the students in the jury box, appoint the judge. and They would try the case. And he'd be back there smoking a cigar and you'd think the guy's out like a light, he's hearing everything that's going on. And after they finish the case, he comes storming down the aisle saying, you don't mean to tell me you're going to try that case like that, are you? You know what I would do with that prosecution? This is what... <clears throat> he it. The defense said, boy, we must have really cooled this one. And after he got through, he'd whip around and say, you know what I would do with that fifth-rate defense? This is what i do. They had nothing left. The only secure guy left is the judge. And then he'd smile and say, you want to win that case? Follow me. Students would ask me when I'd send them out to the university to watch them in action. How do we find him? I said, it's very simple. Just look for a guy, and if you got 12 or 15 students follow him, follow him. That's the guy. Go over to lawyers' in, sit down with a cup of coffee or a Coke, and he'd say, now, let me show you how to win that case. I was out there one day and I said, Dr. Charmantz, I really appreciate you allowing me to send my students out here. Oh, he said, that's all right, Hendricks. He said, every now and then, we get in deep water out here and we need some theologues to bail us out. (laughs) I said, what is your educational philosophy? He said, educational philosophy, I don't know what in the world you're talking about. He said, I have only one principle of teaching. I said, really? What's that? He said, I'd rather have my students lose in here and win out there, rather than win in here and lose out there. Did you hear what he said? So we got him winning like crazy in the Christian community and losing like crazy out in the world. Our seminary lawyer was trained by Charmant. And I said, uh, Bill, what was it like to be in Charmantz's class? He said, Hendricks, after you've had Charmantz, everything in real life is downhill. (laughs) Develop responsibility. You see, that's why delegation is the ultimate test of leadership. And many of us, particularly in Christian work, hog the show. We rob people of the privilege of living. I watch youth directors. They lead the singing. They do the presentation. They plan all of the meetings. They do everything except train the kids and develop the leaders. Here's the fourth one. You motivate a person when you show them how. Now, there are four basic stages to showing a person how you're taking some notes, just jot them down, draw yourself a little diagram. The first one is the telling phase. That's the one that we're usually best on. You've got to tell them. And by the way, I would encourage you, whenever you can, write it down, put it on a tape. Somebody working with business and professional people. One of the things that we have learned, when we lead a man to Christ in our community, when my wife is responsible for some woman who comes to know the Lord, the first thing we do is put a set of tapes in their hand. Find out you got a player? If not, we'll get you one. Little Japanese player, doesn't record, just plays. Put it beside you. Going down Central Expressway, down the freeway, world's largest parking lot? Play that thing. Otherwise, you're going to lose your sanctification. See, some guy cuts in front of you, says, hey, cut that out. See, well, just listen to this. And then when they cut in, just wave to him. Tremendous. We have people who listen to these tapes 15, 20 times. They can quote me better than I can quote myself. In like fact, a guy gave me something the other day, and I said, man, that's tremendous. Let me write it down. he said, I got it from you. <laughs> First of all, telling. Secondly, showing. Now, I've got to dramatize this for you so you can understand it. In our churches, we have teacher training, beloved. And next Tuesday, we're having teacher training. Uh, please show up. Nobody showed up last week. So the crowds come, all three of them. Then we take the book and we read it back to them. Tonight, it's storytelling. You will notice all great teachers told stories. Jesus told stories. There are five parts to a story. We read the whole thing back to him, and then say, any questions? You know, who in the world would have a question? But come back next week for another thrilling teacher training session. (laughs) Anybody ever see a good story? Ever hear one? They would know one if they fell over it. Now, the fourth and fifth are the crucial stages. They are the doing stages. First of all, you've got to do it in a controlled situation. What kind of situation is that? That's one in which you can fall flat on your face without losing faith. When I used to teach homiletics, I would say to the students, Look, I want you to come at the next hour with an illustration. You can illustrate any point you want. But I want you to have the experience of telling an illustration and driving the point home with it. So they come the next time and they all sit, hide, you know, behind the guy in front of them. And finally, I say, "Okay, man, you're on." Now, who? Oh, me? Right. And he comes up here and grabs this thing like it's gonna go out the window, and he he starts into the illustration and gets it all balled up. And finally, says, "Good night, Rob. I forgot the punchline." Let me sit down. No, you can't sit down. Anybody here want him to sit down? Nobody wants him to sit down. <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. said, I got it. And he gives it and he sits down and the whole place comes down with applause. For your information, that's where everybody begins to learn how to speak. See, there is no such thing as a correspondence course in swimming. You don't learn to swim by reading the books. You don't learn to swim by watching the pros go up and down in the pool. You learn to swim by swimming. You learn to share your faith by sharing your faith. To teach by teaching. You learn faith by putting it in the crucible and watching it work. Well, the final stage of doing is in real life. See, sometime we need to go out of this controlled situation where we can make the mistakes, go out to the real world. Now, you know where you ought to learn this process? You ought to learn it from the cult. The director of IBM training told me some time ago, the greatest training in America is not in industry. It's not in education. It's not in business. The greatest training in America is in the cults. It's Sunday morning. I'm home recovering from surgery. Okay? There's a knock at the door. Two guys. Younger guy and older guy. Well-dressed. Little record player. You got the picture? So they didn't know me from Adam. So we'd like to talk to you. Oh, I said, wonderful. Come on in. So they came in. We got involved in the discussion. Every time we go to a passage of scripture, they'd say, well, the Greek says this. I said, the Greek. Well, what's the Greek got to do with it? Well, Mr. Hendricks, apparently you don't know very much about the New Testament. (laughs) But it was written in Greek. Oh, no, no. I said, that fascinates me. I said, do you study Greek? Well, you know, it's a part of our training program. I said, good. So I reached over. I got my Greek New Testament. I handed it to him. And I'd give anything to have this on videotape. (laughs) Guy goes, The older guy tried to bail them out. I said, just a moment. Took the Greek New Testament, read it to him. I said, see, it doesn't say that. And furthermore, it doesn't mean that. Where did they go? Next door? Uh-uh. Teachable moment. See, here's reality. I watched them. They went down the street. They were down here about an hour. You know what's happening down there? I'll tell you. the older guy telling this younger guy how to keep out of that kind of a rhubarb next time. Then they started my neighbor and I said, Hey, Jim, which one talks? He said, The younger one. Of course, he's the one training. And when they get him to the place where he knows what it's all about, they say, Now you've got the greatest assignment. And that's to take what we have built into your life and build it into the life of a trainee." Men and women, the greatest people in the world in terms of Christianity and its replication are in our churches, but they're not multiplying. They're not building their life into others. They've never sat down to say, how do I do what I do? And then share that with others. Here's a fifth one. Convey personal enthusiasm. The art of motivation, men and women, is the art of affirmation. You see it, for example, in Matthew 16. The Lord says, "Uh, whom do men say that I am? And man, they came up with the answers just like that. He said, great. And how about you? And typical Peter steps forth and says, well, you're the Christ, the Son of the living God. Jesus says, fantastic, man. You never got that on your own that's the result of the supernatural you see the rest of the disciples saying wow boy that's our leader <laughs> if you go into the next paragraph you discover Jesus begins to talk with them about the fact that he's going to leave in fact he's going to be crucified as we heard so graphically in the song and, Jesus, and Peter says to Jesus hold it takes him aside and says no way and Jesus turns around and says, Get you behind me, Satan. Has it ever occurred to you that the man he had just affirmed, he now rebukes in the most severe way? Major point. Rebuke is always on the basis of relationship. I had a student who was just processed out of the Marine Corps from Desert Shield. He had the most fantastic ministry in the chaplaincy as a Marine of almost any individual. In fact, he was awarded the highest commendation given to a military person as a chaplain. He happened to go to Wheaton College, and so he and I had a lot in common, and we used to spend a lot of time together. and. After I had built enough of a relationship with him, I called him into my office one day and I said, Jim, I'm really disappointed in you. He said, you're disappointed. I said, right. I said, in my judgment, and I could be wrong, but in my judgment, you got at least 12, maybe more cylinders, and you're operating on about five, comparing yourself with others who really don't have what you've got. Well, my friends, he didn't like that too much. You know, most of us say, Oh, you know, tell it like it is until you tell it. (laughs) And then we say, Well, (laughs) I don't see any wings sprouting out on you. (laughs) I got the most beautiful six-page letter you have ever read in your life. Of a guy who said, in effect, Dear Prof, thanks. Thanks being the first person in my life who loved me enough to confront me with my greatest weakness. You need to understand that anything that has happened to me in my ministry has happened because you called me into your office one day and said, Jim, I'm disappointed in you. You see, what you need to ask is, are you on a person's back Or are you on their team? You need to get off their back and get on to their team and get excited about what God is doing in their life. But there's a key to this. You've got to know what to get excited about. My older daughter took violin lessons from the 1st chair violinist of the Dallas Symphony Orchestra. Great privilege. And he used to give these recitals. And you know what fascinated me? I would go to the recital, but he would never play. And you should hear this guy play a violin. And I thought he'd get up someday and say, Ladies and gentlemen, let me show you how I, my friend, I'm not paying him to play a violin. I'm paying him to teach my daughter to play the violin. And by the way, that's the test of your ministry. It's not what you do, it's what other people do as a result of what you do. You need to know what to get excited about. There's a sixth and last one I want to mention, and that is develop an incurable confidence in God's ability to change people. By the way, I picked up some incredible statements during this week. I picked up statements from individuals, from guys and gals and faculty members and staff members who have seen God bring supernatural change in your life. Man, that ought to have your confidence level off the graph in terms of what God can do in somebody else's life. Did you ever look at the disciples? Here's Jesus Christ. He wants to launch a worldwide movement. Let me ask you an honest question. Would you have chosen the disciples? Would you have picked Peter? Peter, who having nothing to say, said? See, here's Motormouth. Philip and Andrew. I don't mean to be too hard on these guys, but I seriously question if they had more than about 90-95 IQ. Just vanilla. Hi. <laughs> Who are you? Ah, I'm a disciple.
1: <laughs>
0: see, when the Greeks came to see Jesus, to whom did they go? Philip and Andrew? I mean, did Peter and John? Good night. No, they'd still be in committee making that decision. They came to Philip and Andrew, and he said, You want to see the Lord? <laughs> sure, man. Come on. By the way, it was Philip and Andrew who had their nose in that little boy's lunch pail to find out how many loaves and fishes he had. Down to earth, guys. <laughs> Thomas. How would you like him on a building committee? See, every time you come up with an idea, he's got 17 reasons why it won't work. <laughs> Show him the donut, all he sees is the hole. And then Judas. Student came up after class one day and he said, Prof, I got a problem. I said, what's your problem? He said, why did Christ choose Judas? I said, I don't think that's a problem. I said, you don't think so? I said, uh-uh, I got a bigger problem than that. He said, what's that? I said, why did he choose you?
1: <laughs>
0: While he's still recovering from that, I said, I got another problem. He's not talking now. So that's how I got in. I got more scriptural reason for why Christ chose Judas than why he chose you and me. But you see, the miracle is that God chooses people not on the basis of what they were, but on the basis of what they were to become. In my public school days, I can only remember two teachers. My fifth grade teacher, Ms. Simon, and my sixth grade teacher, Miss Nolan. I will never forget my fifth grade teacher, Miss Simon, and I guarantee you she will never forget me. I walked into her class, and I want you to listen very carefully. I walked into her class and introduced myself. She said, Howard Hendricks, I've heard a lot about you. And I understand you're the worst kid in this school. Well, what a challenge. <laughs> Man, if I'm the worst kid in the school, I'll guarantee you, I'm never going to show up number two. And I never disappointed her. I gave her unholy fit. She finally decided to tie me to my seat with a rope. She took my hands, put them behind my back took mucilage paper, went all the way around the front, and said, Now, Howard, you will sit still and keep quiet. So what else do you do? Finally, I was graduated from her class for obvious reasons. (laughs) And I went in to meet my sixth grade teacher, six feet, four inches tall. I used to think if Miss Noe had done nothing for me but just stand erect, she would have communicated something. I introduced myself and she said, Howard Hendricks, I've heard a lot about you. And I thought, here we go again. And then she jarred me. She said, but I don't believe a word of it. In men and women, I met the first person in my life who convinced me they believed in me. And I'd never let that woman down. I used to take extra work at home. I would run her errands. I remember one night I was working on a project for Miss Nolly up about 2 o'clock in the morning. My father came by my room and he said, What's the matter, son? Are you sick? I said, No, I'm doing homework. He said, You're sick. (laughs) I used this illustration a number of years ago. And at the end of the session, a man walked up and he said, I think you were talking about my mother. He said, did she teach in Philadelphia at the McClure School? I said, that's the woman. I said, where is she? Well, he said she's in a retirement home in Cedar Rapids, Iowa. I said, give me the address. I changed my whole plan to go see her and I found the reason. She was married to a very prominent surgeon at Temple University School of Medicine who walked out the front door one day, told her to hang it on her beak, and left her with two boys in order to keep body and soul together because he had shafted her in a legal deal he had structured. She had to go back to teaching. She used to come to McClure School, she told me, Every morning, a half hour before classes began, and just fell over that desk and said, Lord, use me as your instrument to impact people. Someday I'm going to write a book. I've already entitled it, The Incredible Misknowledge." Because, you see, I've met men and women, not only across America, but around the world, who are the product of that woman's ministry. Don't ever forget it. How you see a person will very largely determine what that person becomes. You see them as a loser, you may have the dubious distinction of developing one. You see them as a winner, you may have the exciting privilege of being God's instrument to flow into the light of others. I want you to know I'm going to be praying for you. I'm going to be making intercessory investments on behalf of the student body and faculty and staff of Masters College. And I am praying that God will light some fires this week that will never go out. We desperately need leaders much more than you are aware. And I believe you represent the hope For the future of our society, of our family, and of our churches.